Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so excited about today's episode. We have a guest who is one of my favorite people in the whole green world. His name is Stephen Ritz, and he has a brand new book out. It's called The Power of a Plant, A Teacher's Odyssey to Grow Healthy Minds and Schools. Stephen is the founder of the Green Bronx Machine, and he has a tremendous backstory, but his accomplishments in one of the most challenged areas in the country. Country, um, well, they're just going to blow your mind. And so I am so excited to welcome, welcome him on to Go Green Radio. Thanks for coming on, Stephen, and congratulations on your new book. Well, hello, Jill and Go Green Radio. I'm just so thrilled to be here, and it's a beautiful day in the beautiful South Bronx. Awesome. And it's a beautiful day here in California where I am. So coast to coast, we've got sunshine. Now, Stephen, you have received so many awards for being a world-class educator. But I love the story that's in your book about how you first became a teacher. I'd love for you to share that with our listeners. Yeah, so the backstory, if you will, to both becoming a teacher and, of course, to the whole green odyssey that ensued is that it never meant to happen. So for listeners who are, for people who are listening, my simple advice is show up, grow up, bring your body and your brain will follow. And, you know, amazing things can happen along the way. I call them, uh, you know, collisions, connections, and co-learnings that can get us all to a better place that result in a pathos, egos, and logos that make it happen. And that's the story of my life. So literally, uh, I went to school as a college athlete long before Proposition 48, which meant that, you know, grades weren't important. And during college, I was asked to graduate elsewhere several times, and I'll <laughs> leave it at that. Um, so I was not a student, but I could surely put the ball in a basket and went out of college thinking I was going to go to the NBA. And you know what? I'm still waiting for that call, Jill. So the NBA hasn't (laughs) called. This is the last year I'm giving them a chance, you know, since 1983. So I'll put it all in perspective. But I did take a test to become a New York City school teacher before I left to Europe to try and play basketball at a time where New York City was experiencing a tremendous teacher shortage. And lo and behold, because I was reasonably literate and did a whole lot of reading and, and certainly passionate, I passed the test. And after blowing out my knee in Europe two months into a summer season, I returned to the South Bronx with looking like Peter Frampton, not now, but then with a full head of hair and a sunburn (laughs) on my neck and a pair of tight white shorts and a cast from my ankle to my hip and wound up taking a job at South Bronx High School, the only standing building in an eight block radius where at the time crime, crime, crack and, and, and AIDS were consuming lives daily but was absolutely determined to make Epic happen and have this fundamental belief that children should not have to leave their neighborhood to live, learn, and earn a better one, and that no child rises to low expectations. And that, you know, if we hold people and ourselves accountable to just a greater global good, amazing things will happen. And that was literally my foray. One big mistake, and I seem to be falling up the ladder ever since. How cool is that? (laughs) 
That's very cool. And your first job was actually teaching special education high school students. And your book describes, you know, your path. You didn't have a lot of support in terms of resources, supplies, or even professional development. And yet nope, you were able to talk, not a teacher textbook. <laughs> I was given 20 pieces of chalk, a key to a restroom and pointed to a door, and they wished me good luck. Oh, my gosh. And yet, somehow, you were able to guide your students to achieve tremendous academic growth. Talk to us about how you did that. Well, first of all, when I started teaching, some of the students in high school were actually older than me. Uh, Chronologically (laughs) and certainly physiologically, many of them were bigger and stronger and faster than I was. But... At the core of who I am, I am a people person and believe that relationships are tantamount to all that we do. And I like to treat people the way I want to be treated. And I believe when you give respect, you get respect. And in a system and in a time in New York City where it was definitely separate and it was definitely unequal, the students who I worked with at the very most appreciated that. They also appreciated some of the commonalities we all shared, which was a love for music, a love for sports, a love for sneakers, a fascination with the emergent hip-hop world. And because of these connections, students and I were able to co-learn together and literally make Epic happen, and that was how it started. So I think no matter what you do, no matter where you go, culture eats strategy for breakfast And as long as you have people who are willing to work together, cooperate and collaborate, people power is what this movement and our larger movement and what I like to think the world should be all about. Well, and it's so true. And I'd like for you to just elaborate on one thing you just said for us. When you say culture eats strategy for breakfast, talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that, because there's a lot of power behind those few words. Well, I believe that when people want to work together and you create a culture of expectation, of accountability, of support and growth, that is so much more important to moving those who are apart from success to becoming a part of it. Because for years there have been attempts to solve poverty. For years there have been attempts to work on the educational inequities of the world. And they're usually very top-down and thought of by people far away who think they're going to come in and be a savior. And what we've really done is kind of perpetuated inequity by creating systems that are designed to alleviate it. The only people who benefit from that economy are those who are doing allegedly and purportedly doing that good work for pay. But when we empower local people to be a part of the solution, to be the stakeholders, to be the change makers, to make our own table, that's what happens. And that's the kind of change that I'm all about. I love that. And, you know, I I do some work myself in um, communities that are labeled environmental justice communities. And this is exactly the pattern that many of those communities have seen for years and years. They have seen people come in from the outside with solutions they dreamed up in in a place far away from the community that they're trying to come in and help. And, um, they don't always work out so well, and they're not always right. so well received. And uh, it's not well, homegrown. You know, I've been in the South Bronx for 30 some odd years, and Superman hasn't made it, and I'm still waiting for the man on the white horse to come galloping up the block. But yep. closer to home, the real heroes I see are the people who are in this community determined to make a change, who are making a change, and creating a whole new table of opportunity. We are the ones that we're waiting for. And that's what this movement, and that's what my book, The Power of a Plant, is all about. 
that a seed well planted in the community written off by so many for so many years can give you a crop of epic proportions and create an avalanche of success around the world. To think that I have gone from the South Bronx, from hope to the Pope and back, that's the story <laughs> of resilience, of optimism, and, you know, of forever growing and forever trying to grow and, you know, failure yielding success. Absolutely. And I want to talk about that because let's let's dive into the green part of this story, which is how you have introduced nature and plants into classrooms, you know, that were in the South Bronx where maybe you look out the window and there there wasn't a lot of vegetation. Talk to us about how that idea first came to you and and how it grew. Well, it was a mistake. And it's important to realize that while people equate me as being the garden guy or the green teacher, realize, you know, I have been a teacher of over 30 years. My career started in 1984. I didn't know what a plant was until after the millennium. You know, 10 years ago, I couldn't tell you 10 kinds of fruits and vegetables. Now I grow 37 kinds of fruits, vegetables, and herbs indoors using 90% less water in 90% less space, 365 days a year with little children who love their fruits and vegetables and <laughs> you can't even buy them. So basically it's about keeping your eyes open for opportunities when you least likely expect it. It's about being resilient. It's about having grit. It's about having determination. It's about being eternally optimistic. My story is rather interesting and most people don't know that I got to this green place after a very dark hole and a very series of very dark experiences in my life. I had been doing um, emotionally handicapped work, children who really were developmentally challenged, emotionally challenged, the first generation of crack babies, um, kids who were really predisposed to violence. I was working, taking drugs and guns off children in the 90s in a community where we even had intravenous drug problems in the schools I was working in, just to give you an idea of how disturbed and diseased those communities were. And after a series of unfortunate events, including the death of a couple of students and the loss of my own children um, with my wife and I, uh, I just left where I was working to circle the wagons around my immediate family, my wife and my life, and just did not want to spend 30 minutes commuting school when I could literally stay at home for those 30 minutes and be with my wife in the mornings and walk to school. So I left my job, took a job unbeknownst to me in the worst, most dysfunctional high school in all of New York City, one with a 17% graduation rate. And just think about what that means. One that was slated to be closed. I walked in, didn't even know, and took a job simply because it was going to fit the need for my family and my life at that time is going to work somewhere close and just walked into sheer chaos. Some additional you know, context is that at the time I walked into a school that had a mobile police precinct parked outside of it. We had wow. 18 armed police officers, 48 school safety agents, and 18 deans of discipline. And think about this. If you have wow. a school where there are 18 people assigned to discipline on a full-time, full-paying basis, there's something inherently wrong about that system and that ecosystem, as I like to call it. So there, yeah. there were, it was probably the craziest thing I ever walked into. And I inherited a group of children, 17 of them, all of them over age and undercredited, many of whom had a lot of issues in their life from homelessness to uh, prior prison conviction, to prior prison stays, uh, to substance abuse issues, you name it, they had it. And somehow, 
really bonded with them because they knew I had a love for them. And remarkably, in the first semester of school, I get this call on the PA system. Mr. Ritz, come to the principal's office. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. What did I do? What did this one do? Oh, God, this could never be good. And so there I go, trudging into the principal's office. I remember her name to this day, Denise. And he says, Mr. Ritz, you've got this package. Look at this big box. And instantly I perk up like a kid on Christmas morning. And I'm looking at this box and I'm like, yes, someone has sent me something in this box is going to be the cure for my career and all that ails me and this entire school of 4,000 students who are going to hell in a handbasket. And I'm so excited that I don't even wait to get back to my classroom to open the box. I take it out and put it right in the hallway and I open up this box like a kid on Christmas morning and my jaw drops. It's a box of what I perceive to be onions. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm not even going to say on radio what my, what my initial reaction was like, <laughs> you know, my high hopes were just clipped at the knees. And I'm like, this is deadly. These kids are going to throw these things at me. I don't even know what they are. And literally I thought they were onions. I was like, this has to be some kind of mistake. And dejectedly, I'm watching the four minute passing time between the bell trickle down. So I pick up the box. I go running back to my classroom throw this big box behind a decrepit, hissing, steaming radiator in the corner of a classroom by a window, and as we like to say in the Bronx, forget about it. And literally, <laughs> that box sat there for six weeks, and I forgot about it and kept teaching and trying to bond and do great things with children. One day, there is a fight in the class, and we had a couple of tough, tough girls and tough, tough boys, and this girl at about 200 pounds gets up to go after this skitty little kid named Gonzalo teasing her endlessly, and I am like, O-M-G. In <laughs> slow motion, I see Carol getting up, and it is over. She's got both fists cocked, and she kicks over this desk, and she is running across the room, and I see little Gonzalo, who's about the size of my pinky, uh, <laughs> and all lips and mouth talking, running his mouth, just taunting her. He pops up alongside of the radiator and reaches out underneath to grab something. And then I really see my career ending. Yeah. I'm thinking God knows what's coming out. And all of a sudden, he's reaching and digging under there, and out comes a handful of flowers. And he's digging, and the more he digs, the box, which was daffodil bulbs, which were flower bulbs, breaks from moisture and him poking and probing at it. And hundreds of flowers start falling out from under the radiator and all across the classroom. And he picks up this little yellow flower and waves it in the face of Carol as she's coming to kill him. The class starts <laughs> laughing. I have a heart attack. I'm like, what WTF, as the kids would say, and you can fill in the acronym, is going on here? And, you know, Carol stops dead in her tracks, looks at the flower, looks at the boy, takes the flower from him, and right then and there, that's when I decided, this is a teachable moment. What has happened? And that's what we call a teachable moment in the South Bronx. Well, the class got diffused. Uh, the situation had a happy ending, and we found hundreds of flowers. The boys wanted to give them to the girls. The girls wanted to bring them to their mothers and take them and sell them. And so we looked further in the box and found out that these were daffodils and that my students and I had been invited to plant them in the fall, so they would come up in the spring to commemorate 9-11. It turns out that my students and I, based on that incident, wound up planting thousands upon thousands upon thousands of daffodils across New York City that fall. 
Uh, we won the Golden Daffodil Award. We were invited to City Hall. People thought we were the gifted and talented program, which remarkably <laughs> we were anything but. But in my mind, we certainly were. And that was the beginning of our green revolution in my classroom at a point in time in the evolution of urban ecology where this whole notion of greening our cities and greenscaping and stormwater mitigation and green roofs were coming to bear fruition. So it was I the love perfect it. time at the perfect place. And we didn't know anything about plants. We didn't know things about plants for, I mean, for years. And we certainly didn't start with food. Uh, that was a whole nother story. But and that's what I want to talk about million, in just a right, moment. A million trees for New York. Yep. You know, stormwater mitigation and Mayor what Bloomberg giving tax abatements to green roofs really created a job opportunity for my students. So they became interested and in And that's... That's what I want to pick up with when we come back from a quick commercial break, because this was the beginning of something that grew into a movement that no one could possibly have imagined at the beginning. So we're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more with Stephen Ritz. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And in case you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Stephen Ritz, and he is one of my favorite people in the green world. His book is amazing, and you have to get a hold of it. It's brand new. It's called The Power of a Plant, A Teacher's Odyssey to Grow Healthy Minds and Schools. And Stephen you know, I know this may embarrass you, so it's good we can't see you blush on the radio, but he is truly a rock star in the green education world, and he's done so many amazing things, and you can check out his bio. If you just go to green, uh, is it greenbronx.org, Stephen? Yes, green you can Bronx go to greenbronxmachine.org or yep. stephenritz.com. All roads lead to the same beautiful green place and the same happy green <laughs> smiling face. And most importantly, know that it's not about giving back but paying forward because proceeds from this book are being donated to support the growth of this program all around the world. And that's not salary. That is the implementation of the program with infrastructure to build out schools, to empower teachers, and to support children. So that, you know, your voice is your contribution. So get out there, grow something great, check out the website, and hopefully you'll enjoy the book. It comes with a Steve Rich double your money back guarantee. So if you don't like the book, I'll buy it back from you at double the price. <laughs> and I promise my listeners, if you get a hold of this book, and I want you all to do this, this should be on your shelf, um, you will not be disappointed. It's so entertaining and so enthralling and so inspiring. You will love it. Uh, now, Stephen, we were talking about how plants first got involved in your classroom with the daffodils. And I want you to go from there and talk to us about how that moment in time when your class started planting daffodils grew into, you know, more plants in the classroom and and eventually into growing food to walk us through that process. Super. So what happened is the beautiful thing about the green industry, whether it's green roofs, whether it's about parks, whether it's about, I like to say, agriculture, and we are putting the culture back in the ag is mm-hmm. that you take children who haven't succeeded and, or really have had a lifetime of not succeeding in school and give them something to do with their hands where they can see the impact minute to minute, hour to hour, and where they walk in at one time and five minutes later have left it better than they found it is game-changing for them. So my students and I, and particularly at that point in time in the history of the Bronx, started taking over abandoned places unproductive spaces, negative places in the community, and started instantly turning them into beautiful, aspirational, inspirational, congregational places of productivity, places where people wanted to go. And these children who were traditionally apart from success and who would walk into a community and instantly, you know, be the kids to trigger the 911 call, became the Mm. spreaders of joy and became the spreaders of beauty and literally became wanted and desired and in the process were able to feel good about themselves and see the progress that they were making day by day and the beauty that they left behind. And that immediately led to jobs in landscaping and construction and park works. And then we started realizing that, OMG, there's this whole other issue that affects our community. Because I'm in the poorest congressional district in America and one of the most food insecure communities in all of the United States. And hunger is something that affected all my students, or they know someone who's hungry. So when we started realizing that plants also were food, which we had no idea. I mean, for most of us, we thought, you know, tomatoes grow in the supermarket. You know, milk (laughs) comes from the truck. You know, chicken (laughs) comes from the freezer. 
We had no idea that we could grow our own food. And growing your own food is literally, it's not only a ticket to good health, it's a license to print money. And when you start explaining to children that, hey, you can put a penny in the ground and come back in 60 days and have a $5 bill, well, listen, I meet a lot of kids who have food allergies, but I've yet to meet anyone who's allergic to money. And even if we're <laughs> allergic to money, most of my students know someone within an arm's reach who is hungry, has been hungry, or was hungry. And so the notion of growing food was absolutely game-changing. And then, of course, once we went from our bulletproof bodegas to visit Whole Foods and got drunk on a beautiful aisle full of tomatoes and food from around the world, that was it. We realized that was our destiny and that we could literally, what I call, grow our own economy. In a community where we were long forgotten and jobs and opportunities were not there, with 90% less water and 90% less space, we realized we were able to grow our own food. And I wanted to take the, you know, the success that students experience outside and in the garden, in the community, and bring it inside a classroom. And I, when I learned that I could grow food indoors and do it vertically, it was game on. And now at this point, 50,000 pounds of vegetables later, my favorite crop is organically grown citizens, graduates, members <laughs> of the middle class, children who are going to college, kids who are eating their way to good health, children who come to school daily to love growing their vegetables, eat their vegetables, and grow outstanding academic performance in a community with limited means and limited access to it. I love this. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of communities out there who are listening and thinking, boy, We'd love to do the same thing, but we don't even know how. How does your organization, the Green Bronx Machine, help other schools, other communities replicate the success that you have created? That's a great question. And that's what I spent the last five years really doing is working on replicable models. Listen, I don't expect every teacher to be Superman. Nobody can do everything, but everyone can do something. And that's the motto of my book. And it all starts with love. So you just got to make a commitment to do one thing and make Epic happen. But what have I done along the way? Well, I've zeroed in on low-cost, scalable, replicable technology. So many years ago, you know, I was the MacGyver of the green space, you know, spending (laughs) untold hours doing amazing things in classrooms. But I couldn't expect teachers to do that, all teachers to do that. I couldn't expect all principals to support that. So I started focusing my eyes on technology that was low cost, replicable, scalable, low inputs of labor, but huge outputs of learning. Because, you know, the part of what I do, I'm about two things, quality of teaching and quality of learning. And while most people think, you know, I'm the school garden guy, no, I am the guy that takes an indoor academic garden and wraps your entire school and learning community around it. That's what this is about. Because I can do great work in schools and grow great gardens, but if the schools aren't performing, my school will be closed and my garden will be shut. So I want the art and science of growing food indoors aligned to common core and content area instruction, aligned to whole school performance and personal gains to transform the world. So for me, I was blessed after my students and I won the National Indoor Gardening Championship, uh, only to be sent to a marijuana convention, which is a story in and of itself that's so hilarious and worth reading. The kids thought I was the coolest teacher in the world, um, and I thought I was going to wind up in the rubber room and on detention myself, only for the kids to rally behind me to have not saved themselves, to help me save my job. And we stumbled across this humble little invention called the Tower Garden, which means you can go from a box to a garden in 45 minutes if you're a man, 
or 15 minutes if you're a woman because you'll read the directions <laughs> and watch the video. But nonetheless, that's still one classroom period. It puts the garden in class. And from 2014, we had no tower gardens in public schools to now having over 5,000 tower gardens in schools across the United States. And we're just getting started. I'm scaling across Canada, out to the United Arab Emirates, down to South America, out to Europe, um, simply because we have this tool. And along with this tool, I created an incredible curriculum, which is Common Core Aligned, Next Generation Science Standard Supported. It's P21 Aligned and International Baccalaureate Certified which means it's good in every single classroom all around the world. It is all content area, and it aligns itself to all subjects day by day. So as your garden grows, so do your learning outcomes. So the other thing that I did is created the National Health Wellness and Learning Center. We have a state-of-the-art classroom in the middle of the housing projects in one of the oldest, most dysfunctional, formerly dysfunctional school buildings in the heart of New York City, over 100 years old, in the middle of the housing projects, in a walk-up building, we have a state-of-the-art classroom, which is low-cost, replicable, built on relationships and learnings that I've had with some of my friends in the Green School's National Network, um, some of our mutual colleagues, and just research-based, where we grow 100 bags of groceries a week, 52 weeks a year. Wow. Upstairs. Go figure that. And we've had visitors to this classroom from 60 countries. And six continents. If any listeners are out there in Antarctica, I need an Antarctica visit to the last <laughs> continent so I can get in the Guinness World Book of Records. So please come visit me. You can write me at SRITZ at schools.nyc.gov. So please write me. I want to get in the Guinness World Book of Records. But it shows that with a little iteration, a lot of ideation, and a lot of hope and passion and purpose, that the answers are literally right in front of us. And they are low cost, scalable, and replicable. And that's what this movement for me is all about, solutions that translate into teachers. So we have a curriculum. With that curriculum, you get a forever site license. You get me. You get my students. You get everything you need to succeed. And, of course, the best thing is that the technology is proven. So it's less about the technology and more about the learning, more about the earning, and a lot about health outcomes. And that, to me, is what it's all about. I love it. And, and so visit the that, Green Bronx Machine website. So long made short. For more information, please get on the Internet. Go visit the Green Bronx Machine website or Facebook page. Uh, the kids are having a good time doing it. And we would love to see you there. Or you can check out the Steve Ritz website or the Steve Ritz Facebook page for additional information and lots of interesting articles. You know, my job and my goal is to inspire the next generation of healthy students and healthy teachers. We are Americans. Mixa. Cans, Dominicans, African Americans, and this now more than ever is our individual and collective moment. We don't need to be beholden to dependent on anybody. And in a time where people are looking to build walls, I just want to set a big round table, invite everyone to build and grow your own. Right where you live. I love it. Oh, Stephen, you're so inspiring. And and it's Amazing to watch what started in your heart <laughs> now becoming, you know, such having such a ripple effect into the hearts and minds and hands of other people. And that I just I cannot thank you enough for all the energy and passion that you have shared and continue to share with others. You know, you have a saying that I I really love, it brings me to tears, but it's so true. You say, children can't be well-read if they are not well-fed. And you have taken 
you know, that mantra and built something so much more around it. And I'd like for you just to, because a lot of our listeners, you know, they are college students, they want to do good in this world, and they're studying a number of different subject areas. They might end up being engineers or educators or any number of things. Talk to us about how something so simple uh, as children cannot be well-read if they are not well-fed has lit this spark, you know, in your life and and taken you from where you started to where you are now. Help us understand that. Well, you mentioned an interesting word even before that, and I'm delighted, and that word is heart. You see, because I've always had a very big heart, and I've always had a very big appetite, and this former athlete (laughs) with his big heart and his big appetite ate himself to over 300 pounds, believe it or not, simply by (laughs) eating what was available in the community. So as my work grew, my appetite grew initially. And I was like, OMG, it took a heart attack in front of my daughter and students to convince me that in order to walk the walk, I, I had to do more than just talk. So by grow, by eating the food that I grow with students in school, remarkably, I have lost 120 pounds. And I wow. say that because the reality is children can't be well-read if they're not well-fed. More often than not, I'm seeing children who are coming to school or was seeing children who are coming to school with no breakfast or cookies or energy drinks. And no five-year-old, six-year-old or seven-year-old needs a bag of cookies and a, and a Pepsi, you know, to start their day with a bag of chips. You know, input equals output. And you wouldn't put vinegar in your Mercedes or your Porsche and my children and my Maseratis, my Ferraris and my Testarossi. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make sure that, you know, I'm going to fuel their minds and bodies with the best possible fuel at the earliest age to get the best ROI. See, when I was working for, in high schools for years, it was great to really help kids turn around, crisis kids and crisis situations turn their lives around. But I also had this epiphany that simply put, it's easier to raise healthy children than fix broken men. And if I started embedding and imbuing good habits at an early age, that would be game-changing. I would just be building good habit on top of good habit instead of unpacking bad habit and replacing them with a new one. And literally, for me, the art and science of growing foods, if children grow it, they eat it, they love it. To think that I have little children coming to school daily asking for salad, asking for vegetables, asking Mm -hmm. for healthy options, and then also taking it home and bringing it to their parents and teaching them what to do with it is game-changing. And realize one of the things indigenous to my community is I have some of the biggest immigrant populations in all of New York City right here in my backyard. We have 45,000 people within eight square blocks with zero access to fresh food. Many of them are immigrants who came to this country looking for fresh food, with a knowledge of fresh food, with a love of fruit and vegetables. So the fact that we can grow them in school and the children can send them home means children are teaching parents what to do with them. Uh, and more importantly, we're bringing parents into school to access them and along the way working on literacy, community development, what I like to call the new set of ABCDs, asset-based community development, growing something greater. And in a community that was once termed a food desert, which is a term that I absolutely loathe, I like to say we're creating a rainforest, hyper-connected, mm. hyper-niche-specific, and, you know, totally independent on everybody instead of being that nonsense oasis. And, you know, that whole food desert term has to go away anyway. Uh, well, that's it doesn't, an appalling term. It is an appalling term. And, and I would really like to it's spend a, a moment term, on that. Really, it, it's a marketing term because my community is not a food desert. It's a food swamp. There's more crap here to eat than you could ever possibly want or need. Everything here, you know, it's a mess. 
a manufactured yeah. edible synthetic substance. It's an extraction economy where these children in these communities are marketed to and preyed upon, and the health and wealth of this community is removed, siphoned off, transferred elsewhere, and in its wake is left death, disease, and disease. And to think that, you know, food pantries have become, you know, the source of food for this community is ridiculous. We can't, we can't cover a bullet wound with a Band-Aid. I mean, society would like to do that, but that's not how this works. You know, remarkably, mm-hmm. we have a dialysis center nestled in between two pharmacies and two fried chicken stores here. We've got to uh, stop putting the problem and the solution side by side and think about systemic change. And that's what this approach is all about. Well, and I love it because, you know, I've worked in some communities that are termed, you know, food deserts. And what they have are bodegas and corner markets and maybe a grocery store, but maybe not, full of processed food that's, you know, pretty easy to open up a package and put in your mouth. Um, There's no cooking required or maybe just microwaving. Um, But, you know, it in no way is a replacement for Fresh it's fruit not and quality vegetables. calories. It's not they're, it's no. nutritionally bankrupt. And to right. think that obesity has become the face of hunger in the United States. Yes. And that's, you know, three out of five kids in some communities are obese but still hungry, and the rest are stunted, shunted, and in pain. Neither that neither side of that coin is acceptable to me. Not in the greatest country in the world, despite whoever may or may not be president, and I'll leave it at that. You know, we owe our well, children better. Michelle Obama was so spot on. Exactly. And I think a lot of people were really inspired by her focus on, you know, what's going on. It's not just hunger. That's not the only issue. You can be hunger free on a bag of double stuffed Oreos, but that's not the solution. Um, it's not that just is about not the solution. When I stood in front of the White House and there's a picture of me standing in front of the White House at 300 plus pounds listening to Michelle Obama, that was the turning moment for me. And I'm mm-hmm. proud to say I've gone from outside the White House at 300 pounds to inside the White House to cook regularly to putting a garden in at South by South lawn. That's our story. From our South Bronx greenhouse to inside the White House, that's the power of a plant. And I hope everyone just picks up a copy of the book, reads it, loves it, and shares it with the world. I hope so, too. And we're going to take a quick commercial break, um, but we're going to be right back with more with Stephen Ritz. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. 
Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And I just want to remind our listeners that Go Green Radio is just one part of a much bigger organization. It's called the Go Green Initiative, started it back in 2002. And this is one of our many ways of reaching out and helping to educate our community on all things sustainability related. So if you'd like to get involved, check us out at gogreeninitiative.org. We'd love to have your school involved. We'd love to have your community involved. And there's lots of ways to plug in. So check us out at gogreeninitiative.org. In case you're just joining us, our guest today is Stephen Ritz, and he is an amazing and an inspiring educator. And he has started something called the Green Bronx Machine, which you can see. Uh, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us at voiceamerica.com. But you can open up uh, a new tab in your web browser and go to greenbronxmachine.org and check out his website while we're talking with Stephen. He's got a brand new book out, and that's what we're talking about today. It's called The Power of a Plant, and I invite you to get a copy. You will love it. It's not just the story of the Green Bronx machine. It's his story and how he evolved from a kid right out of college who really didn't plan on becoming a teacher to being one of the premier green educators in the world. And it's an amazing and truly hilarious story. So I know that you'll love it. Stephen, your section, there's a section in your book that outlines ways that school leaders can help grow green programs in their schools. And all of the suggestions that you have are excellent. But I'd like for you to talk to us about this concept of inviting the right partners. That really resonated with me. So talk to us about that. Right. I think, listen, this is a job that no one can do entirely by themselves. So I'm a big believer in coalition and collaboration, but you've got to find the right partners. You know, forcing a fit is not the right thing. And we always need to be ever mindful of what primary focus is in school. The primary focus of school is education. Now, you can get there a whole bunch of ways, but if you're really putting what you're called to do in front of what you're paid to do, you're going to have a problem with the principal. Um, and Lord knows I've had my fair share of problems with principals, which I document well, and a large, a large part of it at this point in my career I'm willing to take ownership for. However, my lessons learned don't have to be your pain. Let my pain be your gain, and the mistakes that I've made I've highlighted so that no one has to live them again. And, you know, I think I did it in a rather unique and humorous way 
but really making sure you sometimes, you know, the partner that you dream of is not the partner that you're getting. Um, someone with a glossy website and a lot of promises, you know, you've got to ask those hard questions. What does it look like on a day-to-day basis? Because if they're coming in claiming to be a hero, I get a little skeptical. You know, there are lots of programs with great data and wonderful websites and phenomenal founding boards, and that's wonderful. I support those programs. But for people who are struggling day-to-day in communities, how do you keep it hyper-local? How do you make it to that when their funding runs out or they've moved on, that you still have people boots on the ground where you live? I mean, I work in a community that is 18 blocks from a subway. You don't get lost and wind up here. It's a very deliberate choice to be here. (laughs) And usually that involves someone who has to get paid to be here, except for the people who are forced to live here. So if your solution doesn't involve the people who you are living with and working with and working for, that is a Band-Aid, and you will never solve a bullet wound with a Band-Aid. That's, you know, and we've got to accept that fundamentally to the work that we do if you want to create community change. Now, if you want to create organizational change, that's a whole different ballgame. You know, you support a big organization, and, you, can, you know, you can click and donate your way to curing the world. But, you know, I've gotten my fair share of accolades, and, and Jill, you've been so kind to give them to me, as have my peers and my colleagues, but the real heroes are the kids who come through this door every day. The grandparents who are taking these kids to school, sadly, because there are a lot of issues around parenting in this community, the criminal mm-hmm. justice system, employment, and chronic underemployment, chronic unemployment, disease and disease that impact households and families in ways that people who are not a part of this community on a day-to-day basis could never understand. So unless your solution involves local stakeholders from the ground up not going to succeed long term. And right. for me, you know, a temporary solution is not an answer. It's just a temporary solution and kicking the can down the road. I couldn't agree so with sure you more. Make sure you keep it local. Make sure you keep parents involved, kids involved, teachers involved. The notion of creating the greenest classroom in America, which I think is my classroom, has now attracted teachers from everywhere to want to be here. You know, mm-hmm. we've become, you know, a, a destination. And that's great for people who want to make an impact because they love being here. And also having programs that are accessible to your entire school. I don't want to be the garden guy. I don't want to be the guy who comes in and cooks once a week. I want to be the guy who transforms entire school culture and entire school performance. And when the principal walks in and says, I want more of this every day and everywhere, not less of this. Or not, okay, can you do that after school? I'm not an after school program. We are a whole school program embedded into the very DNA of the entire school culture. I love it. And now you talked about keeping parents involved, which is something, I mean, that was kind of the genesis for my program, too. I mean, I was a PTA president, and I saw how helpful parents could be if they were involved in these types of greening, um, you know, activities and what have you. But besides parents... Who are some of the other local community partners who can really help a school, help a teacher um, replicate what you've done? I mean, are we talking about local businesses, city council? I mean, who are some of those partners that other communities communities, understand in marginalized communities, city council is your best friend. Because, mm-hmm. listen, in Manhattan, I can't coalesce a vote. But if I get a couple of grandmothers down here, down to a city council member's yeah. office, trust you, me, in the South Bronx, granny swings a mean cane. No one wants to say <laughs> no to grandma. So in communities where there has been limited participation in democratic processes, getting people involved and engaged in those processes is tantamount 
I'm so thrilled, you know, that my children know who the Bronxboro president is. They know who my local senator is, and they know him by name. They know who our local assembly member is. They know our local council member because we've created that demand and accountability. And that's awesome sauce. That's what it's all about, participatory democracy. But who are the other people involved? Grandparents, aunties, and uncles, the unemployed and the chronically underemployed, because they all bring value to a community like this. And if you bring them to the table and find ways to engage them, these are the kids, these are the parents and adults the children see on a daily basis when we're gone. So teachers, you're only loco parentis, but we send them home, and we need to involve the people who we are sending these children home to. And remarkably, the one thing about food is that it's a non-negotiable. So when you feed children, you feed parents. And when you give parents food, you're giving children food. And when you do it in school collaboratively and collectively around the table, everybody's involved. Absolutely. Now, let's let's pretend for a moment that we're talking to communities that are very similar to the South Bronx in terms of demographics, in terms of economics, and they want to do what you've done. How do they get prepared? What do they do? So my advice, great. My advice is I understand that the work that I've done seems impressive and daunting, but you know how I started? With one student at a time, one classroom at a time, small and scalable. That's what this is all about. Exclusivity breeds market share. So start with two or three children. Make it a vote to go to the fourth or fifth. Make it a vote to go to the fifth or sixth. You know, let those children own this, you know, and give up that real estate really, really slowly. Make the children earn it and want it, cherish it and value it. Listen, it's great to have these big, huge farms and massive projects, but that requires massive infrastructure and massive labor. So keep it mm-hmm. easy on yourself. Start small, think great, and celebrate often. That's the other thing. Celebrate often and give everybody else credit. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, Stephen, I would love to hear maybe a couple of stories of students who've gone through your program who, you know, now they're adults. What's happening? What kind of adults come out of this sort of a nurturing environment? I'm so glad you asked that, and I was so proud to highlight so many of my wonderful students in the book, A Power of a Plant, where they started from and where they're at today. I literally, you know, not only did our daughter graduate college last month, but I was attending Congrats. countless graduations. Yes, yeah, thank you. You know my daughter. You've met her. But not only did she graduate, but countless other children who were never expected to graduate high school or go to college, much less graduate college. So in my book, I highlight students who are now part of an economy that they've never imagined, some amazing happy endings. And they should not be the anomaly. They should be the norm. Children who go to school, go to college, and go out and buy homes, have retirement accounts, come back and serve their community in ways they've never imagined. So I don't want to give away too many of the big surprises of the power of the plant, but man, oh, man, are they in there. You're going to read about kids who are going to make you laugh cry, inspire you, move you to tears, and then see where they are today. Um, I'm so proud of some of my students today. I'm meeting with some of the team from uh, Whole Foods, where my students who would have never even thought to walk through the door of Whole Foods are now management, are now staff. Um, Later on this afternoon, I'm going over to a six-acre community garden that my students maintain to grow something back and feed other people. So those are just part of it. Children who own homes, who came from housing projects, who vote 
have 501c3s and retirement accounts and are managing other students and are managing jobs and working on Wall Street, places and things they never imagined or aspired to. And that, to me, is what this STEM to STEAM movement is about. A, make more art. A, make more advocacy. And A, have more aspiration. I want children to be who they want to be and who they can be, not who they have to be. And I will be the voice for the voiceless until children learn to scream and make noise for themselves. And remarkably, they're here and in the book screaming their own success. And I'm just so proud to share it in the power of the plant. Get out there and make epic happen. Be inspired. Well, and this is one of those books that regardless of your vocation, you know, regardless of uh, the job that we do nine to five, there's something in this book for everyone because you have created a place for everyone in the community to be involved with Uh, some form of what you've called the Green Bronx Machine. And I want our listeners, once again, to get that URL. Get out on greenbronxmachine.org. And that's where you can find out more information about the book and about Stephen's work. Now, Stephen, I've interviewed a lot of authors of books on this show, and many times they're speaking about just one issue. Uh, Environmental protection, public policy, environmental justice, sustainable food, etc., etc. But your book is so unique because it effortlessly covers all of those subjects and more. How do you integrate such a wide variety of topics into a coherent program? Well, I think... You do it because it's what needs to be done. And again, I think in order to lead, you need to know what lane you're in. Um, Otherwise, you're bringing people all over the road. And people can't follow you if they don't know what lane to do. So at the heart of what I do, my primary focus is quality of teaching and quality of learning. But how I get to that quality of teaching and quality of learning is through the art and science of growing vegetables and the whole notion of self-care instead of health care. That, you know, children should not have to leave their neighborhood to live, learn, and earn in a better one, which resonates deeply with them. And the simple premise that no child rises to low expectations. And that zip code and skin color should not determine outcomes in life. And part of the power of the plant, you know, details how I'm going to be the first teacher from the South Bronx to send the first cohort of children to the Bronx High School of Science. And that's something that every parent, every child, every business owner, every politician and every educator can get aligned with, you know, good Absolutely. health is everybody's business. It is. And, and good, healthy citizens make for healthy communities. Right. In the I think last the only people fi- who probably don't like my book will be those who are in the prison complex industry. But other than that, you know, it's a good read for everybody <laughs> else. We don't mind. We don't mind right. making them uncomfortable. We've got 30 seconds. Give advice to college students who want to make a difference in the world. Go. Okay, so for college students, come and bring your A-game daily. Work purposely. Live boundlessly. Make epic happen, and don't be afraid to fail. Those are, my, those are my advice to you. That's my advice to you. The world is ready and waiting, and think about impact. You know, we don't own things. They own us. When I was a child, we loved people and used things, and I urge all of you to stop loving things and start loving people and make the world a better place, you know, otherwise we're borrowing our time from the future of our children, and we can't do that. Well said. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you for your continued work. Power of a Plant, The Power of a Plant. Get that book, everybody, and I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio, and until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. 
you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week. 